Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spread to the week of August 10th, Inflating Expectations. I'm your host, Dan Creter, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss this morning's inflation print and what it means for the direction of credit spreads from here. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. Well, then, just a little bit ago, we got inflation data for the month of July coming in softer than the market was expecting, 0.0% on headline versus 0.2% expected, and most importantly, 0.3% growth in core versus expectations of 0.5%. Let's just start there. High level, what were your main takeaways from today's inflation report? Yeah, it was pretty strong across the board. A lot of impetus for the risk on reaction that we've been seeing. You could nitpick a little bit here and there saying that some of the energy impacted segments of the number that are ostensibly excluded from that, the core number kind of seeped into the number. We saw a reduction in the transportation services component of the headline number, undoubtedly due in large part to the ebbing of fuel costs, but really a strong number overall. And it causes some reason to rethink you know, what the Fed's going to do in September. There's another inflation report before then. There's another jobs report, which will play very largely into the calculus regarding the Fed's move in September. But right now, I think it's up in the air. Yeah, I mean, to your point, a very broad deceleration in core CPI over the month. I mean, really, shelter was the one component that remained relatively elevated. If you take shelter out, though, we saw the slowest reading in month-over-month core CPI since September of 2021. So pretty broad across the board outside of shelter, the deceleration inflation. Obviously, that has impacts both for credit and for the Fed. So let's start with the Fed. I mean, Walking into our podcast here this morning, when I walked away from the desk, Fed funds futures were pricing expectations of between 58 and 60 basis points for September. So obviously, above all else, this morning's CPI print puts 50 basis points on the table. And we're going to have incremental economic data that's going to obviously have significant sway on what happens in September. But you know, we have last week's employment data and this morning's CPI data sort of telling two different stories for what to expect from the FOMC in September. Obviously, here today, we could maybe expect a 50 basis point hike, but last week's employment report was very hot, and we saw pretty significant wage gains, which you know, is something the Fed has to be watching, given that wage gains is a key component of the wage-price spiral type of embedded inflation expectations that the Fed is trying to avoid. So, well, with the obvious caveat that we still have another inflation and employment report before September... What are your high-level thoughts on 50 versus 75 here? Well, going into this number this morning, I was thinking that if we had a print that was on the screws, it would likely push expectations further in line with a 75 basis point move. But this downside miss and a really broad downside miss that wasn't only captured by headline inflation, it was really throughout core CPI and in particular some of the more important segments that the Fed is is certainly watching for. So now I, I really do think it's up in the air. We'll see what average hourly earnings say. We had a three tenths of a percentage point beat in average hourly earnings in the last payroll report. The Fed will undoubtedly want to see that show some signs of 
of improvement, but this move downward in core CPI where there was an expectation that maybe core CPI hadn't peaked yet, a move away from that narrative is certainly going to help the Fed feel more comfortable about a deceleration in its rate hikes in coming meetings. Even just very basic question, though, 5.9% inflation, which admittedly wasn't as fast as the market was expecting, but is 5.9% inflation consistent with a 50 basis point rate hike? You know, it's hard to say. I think we're going to have to start now looking at the trajectory with which inflation is declining, and that's going to become the most important feature, not just the data itself, but the Fed's reaction function to the incoming data is going to start to become more important. And what type of decline is the Fed going to need to see for, you know, longer term for a pivot to come back into play? I think that's going to become a really interesting question later on this year. Is 5.9% inflation consistent with a 50 basis point hike? I would say as long as that inflation is starting to decline month over month, then I don't think it's inconsistent with 50 base point hike. Yeah, obviously that question doesn't have a direct answer. I, I just wanted to ask it because you, you look at the Fed's attitude. You know, If you asked me a month ago, would the Fed prefer to hike 50 basis points or 75 basis points in September? I would have answered 50. You know, We saw in previous FOMC meetings, particularly the May FOMC and the March FOMC, where the Fed is trying to provide forward guidance that was dovish. So they're at the same time trying to be simultaneously hawkish now, but dovish in the future. Setting up things like 75 basis points is not common. We're not actively considering that, and this is unusual. They've moved away from that more recently and just saying it's going to be more data dependent. They've really stressed the data dependence of it. And even after the July FMC was sort of interpreted by the market as dovish, we've seen you know, a convoy of Fed speakers coming out and trying to reverse that dovish interpretation, saying we're not near the peaks yet. 75 should be on the table for every meeting until inflation has sustainably turned lower. So I almost think we had a reinforcement of the Fed's commitment to fighting inflation after the June number. And I, I'm not convinced that, that one number here in July will be the turning point. Obviously, we have another reading for August data that, that could be another step in that direction. But I'll be very interested. You know, We have Jackson Hole starting in a couple of weeks. Maybe at the Jackson Hole meetings, we start to get a glimpse of what the Fed was thinking, how the Fed is going to interpret the July number and what that might mean. And, and so I think that Jackson Hole itself will become a potentially market-moving event. So we'll be watching that very closely. But now we can turn the conversation more towards credit spreads in particular, obviously what we're here to talk about. And it goes without saying that today's CPI print is going to result in some credit spread narrowing. Obviously, equities were up almost 2% when we walked away from the desk here this morning. So I guess the question becomes, how much room do we have to run and will it prove lasting? And I think we can turn back to our typical way we view credit spreads and look at the main factors that drive them and try to answer that question. And we can start with fundamentals, which have arguably been the primary tailwind for credit this year. And it looks like they remain strong after Q2 earnings were reported, despite a recent downturn in upgrade-downgrade ratios. Looks like fundamentals remain pretty strong. Yeah, I mean, given all of the discussion about the headwinds to the economy and the warnings from corporate CEOs about slowing demand and, and rising costs, Corporate fundamentals have remained very strong. Through Q2 earnings, you know, we really haven't seen a deterioration in the key balance sheet ratios that credit investors are concerned with. Things like leverage ratios, interest coverage ratios, they remain very strong. Interest coverage ratios are near their strongest levels on record for the median IG borrower. The one 
area that you could point to as a source of weakness is cash ratios have declined somewhat among corporate borrowers. That's due largely to the light issuance that we saw throughout most of the second quarter of this year. But really what we saw was net leverage ratios have been pretty constant over the quarter. Total leverage ratios have fallen. So instead of tapping capital markets to deploy cash, corporations have just been running down their cash balances. Presumably, that will lead to higher issuance in the medium to longer term if we see an improvement in funding conditions. But overall, earnings have been strong and balance sheet ratios really across the board, not flashing you know, red as a potential source of concern. Yeah, and that's certainly important given that Q2 is really when we started to see the economic data starts to suggest a more meaningful slowing in growth. Obviously, that has become more severe in Q3 at this point, so Q3 earnings is going to be very crucial here. But even earnings that are now slowing even more significantly wouldn't meaningfully impact where we are from a fundamental standpoint with corporations right now. So fundamentals are strong. They're going to remain that way. Obviously, if it's a stock versus flow thing, they could start to worsen going forward alongside you know, slowing economic data. But Fundamentals looking pretty strong, certainly supportive enough to support another move narrower in credit spreads from here alongside the back of an improvement in the macro narrative. But you brought up technicals, talking about the slowing of supply in Q2. I think technicals is probably the largest story in the IG market for the past couple weeks. We have seen supply return, particularly here in August. We've already gotten over $82 billion in supply through the first six sessions of August compared to expectations for the entire month of 70 to 75 billion. We were, we were past that in just six sessions. So clearly supply has come back. How is that supply being received? So I would say it's better than it had been for most of this year, but still by historical standards, pretty poor. We've had new issue concessions averaging close to 10 basis points, which is you know much higher than they are typically. I think the long-term average is around four basis points. Order book coverage in line with averages. And I think what we've seen is these persistently higher new issue concessions have become embedded in investor psyches. And even during bouts of risk on, you know, we've had credit spreads narrow over the past month, but we haven't seen any real consistent improvement with new issue pricing. So I think it's going to take a lot of time before new issue concessions start to normalize. One demand trend that I think is worth highlighting on the technical side, we had for the first time in, I think, 18 weeks, IG bond funds saw net inflows last week, snapping their longest streak on record. So we could see something of a turning in demand technicals, but still coming from arguably their worst levels on record. So a long way to go before demand technicals become outright constructive. So a couple things to add there. You talked about concessions remaining elevated, and that's certainly been the case. I do think part of that has been the mix of borrowers. You know, in the past couple of weeks, it's been mostly very highly rated, large, well-known names that have sort of reopened the corporate market. But since then, we've seen some of the smaller borrowers that maybe had less access to the market after the slowdown of April start to come back. I look at Monday's supply in particular, where we saw over $22 billion in supply, good for the fifth largest day of the year and the largest day since March 3rd. Of that $22.15 billion, 77% of those borrowers were rated triple B. And that's a departure of what we've seen in the past few months. Since issuance really started to slow down beginning in May, triple B borrowers comprise just 33% of IG supply, which compares to an average of 47% between 2016 and 2021. And in just the last four weeks alone, prior to this week, triple Bs were just 21% of total IG supply. So that goes to show you that you know, we've talked about the demonstrable preference investors have had for higher rated corporate paper in the last few months, and lower rated borrowers are having a more difficult time raising money. So the fact that we have triple B borrowers coming back in in size implies, you know, another potential 
incremental step in the health of the IG market, like these borrowers can now once again access capital markets, but it also says that maybe concessions will remain elevated for a while here. First, just because it means weaker borrowers coming to market, but also it does seem likely that there's an issuance backlog that's now hitting the market. You know, that was one of the biggest questions we had was after the big slowdown in Q2, would there be a backlog? And we saw things like increased reliance on short-term debt and things like that that would indicate that maybe there was. Now we're starting to see more and more evidence that there is, in fact, an issuance backlog, and and it will be primarily tilted towards lower-rated borrowers that will likely keep concessions elevated. Yeah, and to that point, the absence of triple B borrowers for most of the second quarter really also lends the question of you know how much worse would new issue concessions have been if we had the representative sample of the IG market you know, tapping primary markets. Like you said, concessions for lower-rated borrowers were significantly higher for most of this year. And we're only starting to see that normalize a little bit. But on June, triple B borrowers were averaging about 16 to 17 basis points of concession, consistently higher than the average borrower. And then about the issuance backlog, I don't know if I view it as a backlog as much as there's been a window that's opened. We've had a slight firming in demand technicals. We've had slightly lower rates. And borrowers have really seized this opportunity, even though by historical standards, it's not very attractive. There could be some sense of maybe things are not going to get much better than they are now. Of course, today's rally in interest rates could go a long way towards enticing more issuance in the near term. And even when you were talking about fundamentals earlier, you were talking about low cash holdings for the aggregate corporate borrower at the end of Q2, which is indicative of potentially, you know, whatever we call it, a backlog or a window here for corporations to raise money. It all just, it's saying the same thing two different ways. It just means that we could see supply tick heavier in the weeks ahead, which is a reversal of the supportive supply side technicals we saw from May to July. But it is worth mentioning the increase in the demand side of things, which you started talking about earlier with fund flows finally snapping their losing streak. And it does stand to reason that fund flows will continue to be positive here going forward. I mean, we've talked about many times in the past that fund flows tend to follow returns. And we have finally seen IG returns starting to pick back up in the last few months. And another important component of it is just dealer inventories, which are still at the very low end of the historical experience here. I wonder what you make of the very low dealer inventories and how you think that will evolve going forward. Yeah, low dealer inventories are definitely supportive for a couple of reasons. One being that any secondary market selling dealers ostensibly have some room to start to absorb more supply. They can also more efficiently make markets, and that could alleviate some of the liquidity issues that the market had been seeing for a lot of the past couple of months. So inventory is definitely something that we're watching, another bullish indicator in terms of the demand technicals. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't been a super fun year for a corporate trader with spreads widening for the majority of the year. Also, we know that bank balance sheet extension to trading inventories may be a little bit constrained here by the size of balance sheets and leverage ratios. So it's not surprising to see inventories near the historical lows here. But I think that there's definitely capacity for that to increase. And, and you know, we've had a month now of spreads performing, just lending more confidence to the market. And, and maybe we start to see dealer inventories increasing and providing more liquidity, like you said, which has been a key theme throughout all of 2022. So now maybe just summarizing what we've talked about so far, certainly things looking much better now than compared to the last few weeks for most all indicators in the credit market, except for maybe supply increasing. But Outside of that, you know, increasing demand and improving macro picture, it certainly seems like spreads will continue to narrow here. I wouldn't be surprised by another 10 beep narrowing here in the very near term to bring us in line with the lows observed in around mid-June. But I still think we're not going to have a 
fully durable recovery in credit spreads until we see incremental evidence of a soft landing. I mean, yes, now all the focus is going to be on inflation and, and slowing inflation, but certainly recession has been a key theme for the last few weeks and growth fears remain firmly on the table. Yeah, and we haven't really even talked about what I think is the primary reason for this narrowing in credit spreads we've seen, which is an easing in financial conditions. We've had the stock market rally significantly over the course of July. We've had lower rates, all of this leading to easier financial conditions. And that's something that the Fed is actively working against. So I think the Fed is going to continue to tighten financial conditions. And if you look at financial conditions over a long time horizon, you know we've had a, a slight easing, but the longer term trend, I think, is still in place and that financial conditions are going to move tighter, bringing credit spreads wider along with them as the Fed not only raises rates, but starts to shrink their balance sheet. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've definitely missed a large portion of this rally, but I I think it's worth saying that a lot of the risk factors that we've been talking about have worsened over the course of the rally. We've seen an increase in geopolitical risk. We've seen growth continue to slow. Um, Now with today's inflation print, that's looking better. But, you know, over most of July, most of the macro factors we track were only worsening as spreads continued to narrow in. So I think that financial conditions played a key role there, but risk remains for another leg wider. And I think that we continue to expect that in the near term, we'll see spreads turn wider again as financial conditions tighten. And you brought up QT, and that's that's an interesting thing to talk about because I think now we're going to see QT really start to sink its teeth into the market. I know it started two months ago, but it hasn't really started yet. And I say that because if you look at since the beginning of June, the Fed has allowed a target of $95 billion worth of securities to roll off its balance sheet. In that two months, liquidity has actually increased to the tune of about $200 billion as measured by RRP volumes and, re- and the change in reserves since the beginning of June. That's made possible by a pretty sharp drawdown in Treasury cash, which is a liability for the Fed. And as that comes down, that's reserves mechanically being put into the system. So despite QT running for two months now, We haven't actually seen any reduction in liquidity at all, and that's about to change. Yeah, in Treasury's quarterly refunding last week, they announced that they are targeting $650 billion in quarter-end cash balances, which is another $100 billion. And like you mentioned, when Treasury cash balances decrease, that just represents a mechanical and really exogenous influx of liquidity into the system. Now, as Treasury is set to run back up their cash balances, that $100 billion is going to be withdrawn from the financial system. And when you couple that with the continued decline in the Fed's SOMA portfolio, which is set to increase in pace to the terminal caps in September, that's going to lead to about a $225 billion decrease in financial market liquidity by the end of next month. And that $225 billion figure is actually the largest we have on record. There's really only one other comparable period, which came in the middle of 2020, actually, right after the CARES got passed. We saw Treasury significantly increase its balance sheet in preparation for CARES money disbursement, which it's pretty safe to say was a very different market environment than we have right now. Now, I don't want to pretend like we're sounding any alarm bells on this $220 billion removal of reserves from the system. It's not going to cause any you know, super significant change in financial markets. Obviously, liquidity remains abundant as evidenced by over $2 trillion still sitting at the RRP. But the spirit of what we're trying to say here is heading into QT, you know, April, March, June, we had a ton of questions and market interest on QT was extremely high for the potential repercussions of QT. Would it mean wider credit spreads? Would it mean narrower swap spreads? Would we see risk assets more broadly fall? Would equity sell off? The answer to that question thus far has been no, but 
that doesn't mean it will continue to be no going forward. QT hasn't really started yet. So whatever repercussions of it, we're going to start seeing in the months ahead. And even after this $220 billion removal in liquidity in the next couple of months, thereafter, it will continue to fall $95 billion a month, which is obviously much faster than the pace we saw in the last round of quantitative tightening. So QT really starting now, and that is certainly going to be a headwind likely for credit in the, in the next couple of months as it really begins to start draining liquidity from the system for the first time. And one final note on, on QT that I think is worth making is that our initial expectation that at least in the first couple stages, QT would result in reserves coming down, not the RRP. That seemingly has been confirmed. Even as Treasury's cash balance decreasing, we saw reserves come into the system. It was completely absorbed by the RRP. In fact, reserves were slightly lower over that time period. Not much, but you know we're talking hundreds of billions that went back into the RRP. So it's clear at this point that RRP volumes are indeed sticky, as we expected, and reserves are going to come down and absorb the lion's share of the first rounds of reserve reductions. And that's important for our markets because if it was RRP volumes dropping, we really wouldn't expect much impact on any financial markets. It's just liquidity that's not really being used, being taken out of the system. But it's when reserves come down and bank balance sheets potentially start to become more tilted towards collateral and they have to start adjusting for that, that we can begin to see ramifications in other asset classes. And it, it does appear that that's been the case so far. So I do think QT will matter going forward. Dan, anything else before we wrap up today's episode? I think that covers it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. 
Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.